urban beekeeping, of course, is having bees, honeybees in your backyard and hopefully creating and developing honey so that you can have that for consumption, uh, helping to foster bee populations within our city and um, in the community. And of course, you know, the side benefit is the learning experience and also, you know, the pollination benefit throughout the neighborhood. From coast to coast to coast, you are listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Sonic Patel. And I'm Elizabeth Dowdle. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and bees. This week, we're talking about the humble, hardworking honeybee. We'll explore why some cities are starting to allow urban beekeeping and the benefits that city bees bestow. At the top of the episode, you heard David Whitaker, a man who is not bees, but rather a human beekeeper. Despite the species difference, we spoke to him about his experience becoming an urban beekeeper, promoting urban bees, and how he manages multiple backyard hives in the city of Edmonton. Before we begin this episode, we need to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, Papas Chase, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. We hope, as you listen to this episode, you think about your role as a treaty member and the relationships between people, animals, and land. What benefits do you receive from this relationship, and what do you give in return? Now, let's hear what all the buzz is about urban beekeeping. Across Canada, more and more urban municipalities writing bylaws that allow urban beekeeping. Here in Edmonton, the city amended the Animal Licensing and Control Bylaw in 2015 to allow urban beekeeping. Urban beehives need licenses and need to be registered with the province. There are over 200 licenses in the city right now. One of those license holders is David Whitaker. I caught up with David to talk about his experience with urban bees. Yeah, hi. So my name is David Whitaker, and uh, I'm a chef instructor at Nate in the culinary program. A lot of hobbies on the side, such as beekeeping. Um, About, I would say, six, seven, maybe eight years ago, I wasn't really on the scene of beekeeping at the time. But some of the friends that I have through the community of bees uh, worked with the city to develop an urban beekeeping policy or bylaw. It took a couple, I think, probably a year before they actually got the details sorted out. What it was, it put in place the system so that homeowners throughout Edmonton could apply complete the requirements that the city had and then put hives or beehives in their backyards. And it really kicked off and I think started the urban agriculture in Edmonton. So why would urban municipalities want to allow beekeeping? Well, bees provide crucial ecosystem services because bees are what we call pollinators. Plants need pollen to reproduce and often rely on pollinators to spread this substance from male to female flowers or cones. Bees travel from flower to flower, carrying pollen, and in doing so, help these plants reproduce. Pollination helps maintain and improve plant genetic diversity by allowing relatively distant plants to reproduce with each other. This is necessary for the production of several fruits and vegetables, 
making bees invaluable to the survival of insects and animals that form the local and regional ecosystems of Canada. In a city where areas of vegetation can be quite isolated, like between microparks in the downtown core, yards separated by streets or fences, or different flower pots on an apartment balcony, bees are crucial to maintain biodiversity and biological resilience. Urban bees can also be a tool to teach people about natural ecosystems and pollination. I mean, I think the first thing for me is the education part of it. So I think the more bees that we have in the urban setting, the more educated people are about the importance of bees and also the more relaxed they get about bees. I think it's a little bit unfortunate. Like I'm very much a bee person and pro bee, but what I find is that there's the spotlight is so much on honeybees, on the European honeybee. And we can't forget that there's so many different species of native pollinators in the bee world. Bumblebees, for example, even things like wasps, there's all these pollinating insects. And, you know, the agricultural practices that are causing some of the destruction with bees, with pesticide use, it's not just affecting the honeybee, it's affecting all the pollinators. And, and I, I don't want the honeybee to steal the limelight because there's so many other beneficial bugs out there that are looking after our environment. But the key thing is we talk about is that the honeybee is like the main pollinator for a lot of our agriculture. And without them, we're going to be, you know, in a little bit of a serious shift in our, in our food habits, for example. But so for me, education is number one, honey production, of course, because that pays the bills, you know, making people relaxed about bees. And I think that the city, you know, so many of our uh, residential areas, they're pretty sterile. You know, you look at all the condo areas, there's really, you know, your standard spruce tree, your standard birch tree. There's not really a lot of biodiversity. If you look at people, in fact, most of the people that I know that I have hives in their yards, their planting style is different. They're very much, let's plant a wide variety of plants. Let's plant plants that are beneficial to pollinators and that kind of thing. And I think that helps our whole ecosystem within the city. I mean, more bees can never be bad. That's for sure. I think, why does the agriculture have to stay on the farm? Why can't it be in our city? We can grow our own vegetables. We can produce our own honey. We can raise our own chickens and eggs. Why not? Okay, maybe we don't want cows in our backyard or goats. <laughs> but why can't we do what we can do to make it more Let's get back to our roots. I think that's really what I'm thinking is let's get back to our roots and let's get back to that agriculture and remember that food comes from the ground and that we can grow our own food and uh, be a little bit more sustainable ourselves. Like David said, while urban bees play a critical role in the health of flora in a city, they also provide a valuable product to beekeepers. Honey. Mm, yes. No, not you. The food, honey. Okay, I guess we're not there yet. Bees go flower to flower and collect nectar, which they use to produce honey. This viscous golden liquid is stored in wax honeycombs, which provide the bees with food. For thousands of years, humans have collected honey for their own consumption. Modern apiaries allow for honey to be extracted by beekeepers, providing a local, sustainable source of honey. For David, this honey goes a long way. because I'm a busy guy. I think that's what it is. Um, I typically only harvest in the fall, but this year I, I was bound and determined. I said, when I finished this year, I said this summer coming. So 2021, I'm going to make sure I'm on top of my hives so that I can do a spring harvest because spring harvest, you see a lot more 
dandelion honey and a lot more willow honey and you have a lot more of those flavors whereas in the fall you get more of that mixed wildflower kind of honey this year i'm going to really try hard to do a harvest in the spring it's just that it's a bit involved and i don't have a honey house where i can extract i do it at work so it's a bit of a hassle to haul it in all in and that kind of thing right i have a couple things that i can do like you could of course harvest honeycomb with the honey in it, you could sell it that way. I tend to just extract the honey. What I do with it is I take my frames. Number one, I take the frames and I take off the caps that the bees have put on the honey. Then I have a extractor that I spin the frames in and that extracts the honey out of the cells and it keeps the comb intact so that those frames can go back into a hive and the bees will repair that damage for where the caps were pulled off and then they'll reuse that comb. They'll clean out any honey that was left behind and either they'll move that into other cells or they'll consume it then they'll fix that comb up and then they'll use it right away. And the nice thing about that is there's very little energy resources they have to expend on making more wax. The thing to remember about bees is they have a role in their 45 day life. So each each worker bee lasts 45 days. During their lifespan, the first 21 days they have in the hive activities, but there's only about, I think it's about seven days or eight days where those bees have the ability to produce wax from their body. And then after that, they lose that ability as they move on to other mature levels or other jobs within the hive. So that's really beneficial. So then I spin it out and then I minimally strain my honey because I'm a bit of a tree hugger and I like things really natural. So I strain it just enough to take out any bee parts that might get in there and any larger pieces of wax. You'll notice with my honey that it has a lot of natural pollen that's visible in the, in the honey. It has a natural ability to cream all by itself in about two to three weeks. It takes on a really nice creamy texture all by itself. And that's the way I like it. I don't heat treat it. It is raw. Like it is, it's never heated above the temperature of the hive and it's got all the probiotic compounds intact in it. And that's kind of the way I want it to be, as opposed to some of the other commercial guys, they just don't have the ability to do that because I'm very much a small, you know, I'm a small time player kind of idea. Mm-hmm. And then of course I sell the honey, I eat the honey because I love honey and also extra honey that I have, I make mead with it. Any favorite dishes or favorite vintages from your mead production that you want to tell us about? <laughs> I've been making mead for uh, about three years. I've made several different styles. And of course, there's traditional, which is honey, water, and yeast. And then hopefully your meat has the flavor profiles of your honey predominantly. And I've made uh, some mellow mel. So mellow mel is a mead made with fruit, with the exception of apples or grapes, because mead made with apples is called sizer, and mead made with grapes is called piment. P-Y-M-E-N-T. Then I've made a few combinations, different ones, but I really like the traditional. I think that my traditional has been probably the most balanced, the most consistent across the board. A colleague of mine who teaches the wine and spirits training to our students, she put me onto a competition that's happening. Usually it was happening annually in Okotoks down by Calgary. And it was called, uh, it was actually the, the first one. And it was called the first annual Horde at the Hive competition. And what it was, it was a Nordic Viking kind of celebration. And there was, they kind of celebrated that Viking portion of the meat of the history of meat. And then they had a meat competition where you could enter up to three varieties of meat. And I entered uh, my traditional and I ordered, I entered two melomels into there. One was a peach ginger and the other was a poached pear and cinnamon. 
and my traditional need won silver medal within the category. So I was pretty happy with that. So how exactly does urban beekeeping work? Urban bees live in things called apiaries. Think of apiaries like a condo for bees, except the management is actually competent. Apiaries are man-made structures intended to house beehives and can be traced back to around 2500 BCE, when ancient Egyptians built them out of mud. Modern beehives tend to use materials like wood and wire mesh. Inside the hive lives the queen bee. You might be thinking Beyonce when you hear that, and honestly, that's because you're kind of basic. Ouch. In a bee colony, the queen bee is actually the only breeding female, and is responsible for laying eggs that hatch into more bees. This means bee colonies are, surprisingly, functional monarchies. But, in a manner that Robespierre himself would be proud of, colonies can murder their queen once she becomes infertile and is no longer valuable to the colony. I started probably about, uh, I'm going to say four years ago. This will be my fifth season coming up. I started with one hive in my yard. So typically a hive, you know, there are several styles of beehive. There is the Langstroth hive, which is the typical beehives you might see as you're driving down a rural road or highway and you see the beehives off in the field. And it's a rectangular box type system that has about 10 frames that the bees build their comb on and they store their honey and they pollen and they raise their brood in the baby bees. The Langstroth hives have been around for hundreds of years and it's a proven system, which is why I think commercial beekeepers use it so much. And it's relatively inexpensive to purchase and maintain and set up. Then there's a top bar hive, which is more of a geometrical shape, but it's a horizontal hive setup. It consists of just a top bar of wood and the bees naturally attach the comb to the the top of the bar and then bring it down in that very natural curve shape. If you think about uh, elongated bell curve, but upside down, that's kind of the shape that you would see. You manage your hive in a horizontal manner up to probably 25 or more frames within that area. And then of course, lots of people have heard about the flow hive, which is a bit of a variation on the Langstroth hive you don't really have to pull out the frames to extract the honey. You can put a crank in there and it breaks the seal and the honey flows out. Yeah, that, that one, everyone talks about it, but in Alberta, it's not really proven to be a huge effective hive. So that's kind of the ones, that's really the, the main players that you see. For me, I've gone with Langstroth. It's very straightforward. And a Langstroth hive typically consists of a bottom board. And that's where the bees typically will land and enter the hive and all of your other equipment will be sitting on top of that bottom board. Then from there, you would have uh, what we call a brood super. And there'd probably be two of those. And they're a deep box, about 10 inches deep. And in those two boxes, the queen is laying her eggs and the bees are raising the brood. Also like a bell curve, the brood pattern falls up into that second box. And then all the other areas, the bees are storing pollen and nectar. And then of course that nectar is getting turned into honey. And then from there as a beekeeper, you add smaller boxes called honey supers to the top of that hive. And as the bees bring back more nectar, because they always, they bring back a lot of nectar continuously. That's the bees job is they just continuously bring nectar and they will overfill the honey. Like they'll just continuously fill cells until there's no space left. So beekeepers, our job is to manage that hive and continually add a space so that there's always room for the queen to lay eggs. There's always room for them to store nectar. 
And eventually, you know, I've seen hives as tall as I am, which is like over six foot five. A strong hive in a season could produce 100 to 120 pounds of honey that could be harvested by the beekeeper. And then on the top, you would have uh, some kind of inner cover and then usually a telescoping lid, which helps keep out the elements, etc. Some people run with an entrance at the top where the bees can come and go through the top as well as the bottom. Uh, just depends on your preference. You know, they, they say, ask 10 beekeepers, you get 10 different answers, right? And that's kind of what I found out. And most people like myself is I found my own way. I found what works for me and what my beekeeping style is, so to speak. Inside each of the boxes, you'll have frames. Typically, we have a piece of plastic that's imprinted with the cell the honeycomb or the cell shape. And then the bees will naturally draw the wax or their comb off of that to create their honeycomb where they lay their eggs and where they store the nectar and stuff like that. Financial investment with one hive, including the cost of bees, you could probably set yourself up for under $1,000 with the equipment that you need. Getting bees is something that we do in the spring and April, May kind of period when it starts to warm up in our area. And you can get bees from many beekeepers around the city. You can get them from Bee Made, uh, for example. And you have an option. You can bring in bees in a nucleus hive, what's just referred to as a nuke. That consists of a small box. Basically, it's a mini hive. And it's got four or five frames in it. And inside, you'd find two frames that have lots of eggs and larvae and baby bees that are capped waiting to hatch out. There'll be about 3,000 or so live bees. There'll be a mated queen bee in there. And then there'll be a couple of frames with nectar and pollen stores. So they have a food source. What you do with that is you just simply take it to your existing hive, gently move those frames into your first box on your hive. Usually you start with one box and then you grow adding more boxes based on the growth of the bees. Yeah. So then you transfer those frames into the box and then through management, your own management process, the bees do what they naturally do. They relocate and they reorient themselves to the location that they've been put into. They establish their flight paths and they start to establish their nectar and pollen sources. And then they continue to bring back nectar and pollen and the hive grows naturally. That's one way. The other way is you can get a package of bees. And a package of bees, this is the funny part I always laugh at, which is it's a cardboard tube with vented plastic caps on each end. There's a queen that's mated inside in a little cage. And then there's about 3,000 bees. And that tube of buzzing live bees is sent through Canada Post. So I can just imagine the fun that they get in the post office as they're moving things, things around. As you, When you get your bees, you just take that to your hive. You have to have all your frames in place. Then you uh, open them up. You dump the bees into the hive gently. And then you find the queen and you put that queen cage that she's in into the frame, into the hive, and then the bees will naturally release her from that cage. She'll uh, take over that hive and she'll start laying eggs and the hive will start to grow. The downside to the package is that the bees start with absolutely no wax, no comb. So they have to build that comb. And it's a super labor and resource intensive activity. And um, for the bees to create one pound of wax, it takes them approximately nine pounds of nectar in food stores to be able to do that. So when you use a when you buy a nuke hive, you've already got four to five frames already established with comb. So right away the bees just start taking off and start doing their thing. Whereas with the package, they have to build up comb before the queen can actually start laying eggs. The plus side with the package is that there's very little chance of diseases and pests being transported with those bees. Whereas with the nucleus, you can have some pests and diseases in the hive. Because bees provide ecosystem services, Urban beekeeping has another important value, 
protecting our vulnerable bee population. The health of bee populations in Canada has been in question because of something called colony collapse disorder, or CCD. For the last 20 years, CCD has caused high mortality rates in bee colonies. The reason for this disorder? Nobody really knows for sure. Possible explanations include viruses, parasites, pesticides, and even stress. CCD was first noticed in the USA in 2006, and within a year, several states had reported heavy losses due to colony collapse. Colony losses were also reported in Canada, Europe, South and Central America, and Asia. Adding to the issue of CCD, wild bees are harmed by modern agricultural practices, which create an ecological mismatch in time and space between non-native farm plants and local bees. Because of their role as pollinators, bees are often used in agriculture. But like all livestock in the agricultural industrial complex, the treatment of agricultural bees is not really about the bees' welfare as much as it is about maximizing production. Some beekeepers try to maximize their honey production by leaving no honey for the bees, instead providing less healthy sugar water. Urban bees, with their non-industrial management, may be more resilient, robust, and healthier than agricultural bees. Urban areas might also provide refuge for bee populations to recover and build healthy hives. As municipalities increasingly allow bees in the city, there are some concerns. Often, people worry about bees swarming and stinging them. But for the most part, honeybees are docile. Usually, honeybees are hard at work, extracting nectar and moving pollen. Bees are rarely interested in human food or drink, except water, and typically avoid people. Remember, bees can only sting once before dying, so they will only ever do it as a last resort to protect themselves or the hive. And while a swarm of bees looks scary, after all, it is literally a cloud of 10,000 bees or more, think of it more like moving day. Swarming occurs when a colony gets too large and has to split into two, like hive mitosis. A large ball of bees cluster around and protect the queen, while other bees scout for a new hive location. If you leave them alone, they won't attack. And if you think bees are aggressive, you might be confusing them with wasps. Bees are hardworking, docile creatures, and wasps are monsters born in Tartarus, only designed to annoy and inflict pain. You know, when I first started, I was really anxious, I think is the word I should use. So Jocelyn Crocker, who, was, who ended up being my mentor and also works at Nate with the Urban Beekeeping Project with the city, when they wrote an article about her at Nate, and I thought, I sent her a message right away. I said, you know, I'm so jealous you have bees in your backyard. I'm really interested. And she said, well, why did you come for an inspection? You know, we're doing one this weekend. We do them every weekend. Come on down and have a look and see what it's all about. And I was pretty apprehensive about it. But I headed over there. I just stood there and watched as they opened up the hive and started inspecting. And usually with inspection, you start with your top box and you'll open it up, apply a little bit of smoke to help calm the bees. Also, it helps block some of their chemical signals. If they release any threatening uh, pheromones, that helps kind of interfere with that. And then frame by frame, you pull out each frame and you inspect what's happening on the frame. And you look for signs of disease. If it's in the brood boxes, you're looking for a good sign of a lane, like a good lane pattern that the queen's lane, a nice solid pattern within the center of the frame and that kind of thing. As they pulled the frames out, you could see all these bees flying around, like thousands of bees flying around the hive as you start to disturb their home. Then Jocelyn says, do you want to hold one of these frames? 
So I'm like, yes. And so she just like grabs a frame and she just shoves it into my hands. And it was really fascinating. It was a lot heavier than I thought it was with the weight of the bees bodies. But it was so fascinating to see that frame covered with bees on both sides and the bees really quite indifferent. They're on the frame and they're doing what they do. You know, they're still there. They're still looking after the, the cells, the babies, et cetera. They're doing their jobs. They're going about the job, even though we've pulled them out of their home, they're still doing that. Now there's a few of them guarding, of course, and, you know, jittery or fast movements gets their attention right away. And then they'll start to be flying around. And you'll find out what you're doing. But it was really quite fascinating. And I was hooked immediately. I was hooked after that. Yeah. And then I just progressed on for that. It's like, okay, I need to get my own bees and I need to take a course and this is what I need to do. Then I wanted to expand my experience and I thought, okay, so I can only have two hives in my, at the time it was only one hive in my yard. And I thought, well, where can I put more bees so that I can gain more experience? And I had seen some things online that people were doing uh, host a hive program. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to start my own host a hive program. There's different variations of it. My program is uh, I put a hive in a person's yard. It's my bees, my equipment, and I maintain it. And the homeowner provides me space, access year round. And and also I can do anything I want with that hive. So I can use it for honey production. If I wanted to raise queen bees, I could use it for that. If I wanted to make splits, split hives off of those to make nucleus hives, it's wide open. And at the end of the year, the homeowner gets 10% of whatever the honey harvest is from that hive. So it's kind of a win-win situation. For me, it expanded my ability, like really, really increased my, my experience and my knowledge of bees. Urban beekeeping sounds like a win-win, but some new research has raised questions about the environmentalism of the practice. The bees kept in apiaries are European honeybees, a non-native species. Just like European colonists, the arrival of the European bee has been a detriment to local bee populations. Wild bees are more solitary than honeybees and have a shorter foraging season. The huge colonies inside of apiaries can create competition for nectar and threaten wild bee populations. Because of this, bee scientists Gail McInnes and Charlotte DeKaiser are calling for work to balance urban beekeeping with support for wild bees. We need bees, especially if we want to increase food security and reduce greenhouse gas emissions through urban agriculture. If you are interested in urban beekeeping, David has some tips. Sort of one last question here I had was around if people wanna support urban bees, what should they do? And mm-hmm. maybe we can make this an opportunity as well. I'd like to give you a chance to kind of do some self-promotion, a little bit of a, a plug. <laughs> so, I mean, in terms of learning more about bees, being involved with bees, I, the first place I think is really want to start with the city website. So the city's urban beekeeping bylaw and policy. So you find out more about what's involved. If you want to get into it yourself, there's several Facebook groups that you can join that connects you with urban beekeepers. So you could get involved that way. I actually open it up to my students and I tell them in the summertime, I do inspections weekly and they're more than welcome to say, Hey chef, you know, I'd like to come with you on an inspection or two and see what's going on. Look out for bees in your neighborhood and maybe go talk to a beekeeper. Look at um, Northlands, Northlands Community Garden. They have bees there. There's lots of other programs. There's Dustin Bezier in the city who does some training. I think it's Northlands. They used to also have a young beekeepers group that managed their own hive. And that was started, or when I first found out about it, it was with Dustin Bezier. 
So that's a, a good way for kids to be involved, which I think is a good way for us to foster that, you know, sense of agriculture and ecosystem within our kids. That's kind of how I would go about it. Talk to some of the beekeepers at the markets. Lots of them are more commercial, but there's a lot of small producers out there. You'd be fascinated to find out what it's all about and what they're doing and how much is being produced in our own backyard, which is really great to see. While I'm not really uh, centered around a business and I don't really have a business model yet, I'm just kind of a chef in a spare time who likes to raise bees and, and collect honey and do other kinds of stuff. Support your local beekeeper. That's the buzz about urban beekeeping. The practice has many benefits for bees and humans alike. However, we can't replace a native species with an imported animal and pretend it's natural. Maybe with a little collaboration between humans and our fuzzy friends, we can live and let live more sustainably. After all, there is no planet B. That's it for this week. I've been your host, Elizabeth Dodo. And this has been Sonic Patel. Thanks for listening, and thank you to our guest, David Whitaker. To learn more about David's Host a Hive program, or how to get your hands on some of his honey, check out our show notes. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. Big shout out this week to yours truly, Elizabeth Dowdell, for the interview and production, and Asonic Patel for researching and writing this episode. You can reach us for comments or questions via email, Tara at cjsr.com or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Tara Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week, right here on Tara Informa.